we're good now. All right. Well, now that all the insanity is taken care of, <laughs> um, Chariot Developer News, episode number, what is it, uh, 83 now, right? 83. Yeah, for Monday, March 24th, 2014. I'm Ken Ripple. I'm going to point over here at Don. I'm Don Coleman. And live, remote, you are where? I am Joel Confino from a underground bunker, otherwise known as Wegman's Parking Lot. Oh, you are trendy. Okay. <laughs> well, welcome to the Dev News, uh, remotely, Joel. Thank so, you. a lot of things have been going on. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. You, you wait two weeks, and all of a sudden, you have some news. Um, so, let's see. So, first, first things first, uh, I posted something in the uh, Dev News article uh, stream saying that we're going to move to every other week. I think realistically, just because we have so much going on as people, you know, it's hard for us to keep the weekly schedule, but I think that enough happens within two weeks in the industry that there's usually plenty to talk about. So um, for anyone who's curious, uh, we did pull back to every other week. So starting now, it'll be every other week. Um, and let me just get the uh, stuff here. So, so the main biggest news, I think, is uh, Java 8 was officially released over, I guess, the weekend or late last week. And that's a, a really big piece of news. Um, so have either of you guys taken a look? I mean, I, I haven't spent a lot of time with it. I know we have a couple of people at Cherry that are really interested in it. But has anyone here been tracking uh, Java 8 itself? No, I know John Shepard is really the guy that I go to for the Java 8 stuff. Yeah. Uh, I did see that it was available for download uh, yesterday, though. So I have links in the show notes um, for the Java Tutorials page on Java 8. Um, you know, they always have, like, the Java Tutorial Trail, that whole thing. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, so it has, like, Java JK8 released, and they have, you know, the link to the homepage um, for the downloads. They also have a, a link to the uh, a different features like Lambda expressions, which is a new kind of, I guess, closures Lambda is a way of, you know, dynamically creating blocks of code to run uh, as you're, you're basically passing functions around or running functions. Um, that's a big deal. There's a bunch of new enhancements to the standard libraries we mentioned before in the class, like you've got Joda Time is now incorporated in its own Java.Time library in some form. Um, and you've got things like, uh, you know, um, what else do I have? I have a list of these things here. And I found a really good article, by the way, on uh, winterbee.com, winterbe.com, someone who's been paying a lot of attention to it. And um, he, he has a whole bunch of these different features. So, uh, for example, one of them, hold on a second here, <laughs> uh, one of them is um, having even function objects. So you can actually create a function. It's a single parameter object that returns a result that you can then chain together kind of like in functional programming. I didn't even know that was part of the Lambda API, but that's part of it. Um, they had this concept of a default method in the uh, interface, which is actually an implemented method. So you can say, here's the default implementation of toString, for example. And then you could override it if you want to. Um, they have this concept of wrapping optional values, nullable values, so that they're kind of wrapped in this optional thing where um, they won't throw a no pointer exception on you. You can test them to see whether or not they're uh, there or not. Like Scala-ish stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, streams. So there's a new deal with uh, Streams API. Um, collections, with the exception, I believe, of Map, um, now can have filters and sorting applied. So you can do things like um, you know reduce, match, count, uh, sort, all sorts of things. And there's also a parallel stream option that you can get. You can do things in parallel across multiple threads. Um, this particular uh, person uh, who did this, this Winterby post, let me see who this is to attribute it properly for him. Um, they actually have Benjamin Winterberg is his name. 
And uh, he actually has a GitHub repo with samples for all these things he's looking at. So if you want to play around with Java 8, he even recommends go ahead and fork it, make some examples, share them, talk about them. So really a nice uh, post and a nice website. So we'll have links to that in the show notes. Um, there's new uh, a supplier and consumer uh, interface you can work with to kind of feed things from one thing to another. Um, there's a clock object now, so you can say clock dot, you know, give me the system default time zone in milliseconds. Um, there's time zone objects that are part of a new time zone API, uh, local time, local date, that kind of thing. Yeah, because dealing with times and dates is, you know, not fun anyway. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the nightmare of all nightmares. So, um, yeah, lots of cool stuff. So definitely take a look at uh, Java 8. It's now officially launched, and there are um, plenty of these tutorials out there, at least from the Java Trail and also from this person uh, who does winterbee.com. So big deal. This will be the biggest change to how, you know, um, idiomatic Java is actually written in a long time once people get their head around aggregate operations and lambda expressions and things like that. Pretty cool. Absolutely. Um, Joel, this has got to be you. Increase your productivity by improving your health in seven minutes. Is this you? Oh, yeah. I forgot to put it in there. Is that in there? Where is this? <laughs> this uh, is in the Dev News. I'm looking at the – I'm trying to find a link to uh, – ACSM's Health and Fitness Journal. Yes, to refresh my memory. Um, oh, there we go. No, that's Java 8. And hmm. the Human Performance Institute. This is uh, journals.lww.com, and the article is written by – Brett Kilka and a number of other uh, looks like doctorate people, computer science people. Oh like. yeah, yeah. There we go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I remember. Well, it was just cool because you know you have uh, you think about programming and you don't think it's a very hazardous uh, you know occupation compared to you know landscaping <laughs> or far, yeah farm work. Wait, it's something I have to interrupt work. you. I did see a headline that came through this at lunchtime, and I feel bad because it's a real headline, but it said um, man uh, doing kite surfing. Uh, attacked by shark, and I'm thinking to myself, really, really bad kite surfing or really, really high jumping shark. Yes, <laughs> so, hate to say, and I feel bad for the guy, but my God, that's that's the best headline ever. Speaking of dangerous professions, go on. Yes, <laughs> but so you know, a little while ago, I started getting you know all kinds of weirdo uh, neck and back and wrist pains because basically I would program you know in a setup where my chair I was basically like I was programming on a Harley where my arms are like way up in the air. And, you know, terrible posture. And it started, like, breaking down, you know, finally catching up to me. So I started actually paying attention to things like posture and now use a standing desk and, like, you know, making sure that your neck is actually, you know, at 90-degree angle versus looking, staring down at a laptop or something like that. And so this was pretty interesting where this uh, high-intensity circuit training where you could basically get fit um, at your desk in a few minutes is the bottom line. So rather than have to spend, you know, P90X where you have to spend like 90 minutes or yeah, something, thanks. like, yeah, <laughs> this is, you know, a way that you could actually improve your health uh, in a, you know, in a kind of very short circuit training over, I think he said seven minutes. So Sounds you like can a actually, Tim Ferriss book. <laughs> yeah. So like, I, I thought, Hey, this is great. This is, you know, a way to, uh, you know, minute abs. <laughs> you, you basically, you know, and it's, and he did it all without having weights or anything like, you know, so one of the exercises, you know, most of they're all just like kind of exercise you could just do in a room on a mat on the floor or something right, like that. Right. So everybody can get more healthy in seven minutes and, uh, you know, maybe do your job for a longer period of time by improving your health, you know, to increase your energy level rather than just drinking caffeine all day, which also works. Right. <laughs> so that's a good one. Um, let's see here. Go back to the list. Um, meet the machines that steal your phones. Ars Technica. Did you put this in here? 
Yes, I did. All right, let's talk about stealing phones data. Uh-oh. Now what? Yes. So this is scary. I mean, everything's scary, but this is really scary. So apparently there's a, a whole um, suite of products from a company that is used very heavily by governments. As a matter of fact, you can only buy them. They're only legal to buy if you are a government, if you are like a, a you know, U.S. government agency, which is in and of itself is frightening. Why could something only be legal for the government to have and not for everybody else to have? Yeah, right. I mean, except for maybe like nuclear weapons. But anyway, yeah. uh, yes, there's this thing called the Stingray, and uh, it's used by the government to track mobile phones. And basically what it does is it sets up a, it's like a, it sets up something where phones connect to it and use it, and the government can use it, or anyone who has this equipment can use it to track everything, the, all data in and out of the phone. So voice calls, the content of the calls, just the fact that there's the numbers and things. And it just blew me away that these um, these devices are in wide use. So it's wow. basically like the cell network is extremely, you know, like don't they use SSL? I mean, like, what's the deal? You think, yeah. So, um, but, you know, but ours had this whole very interesting um, article on these whole class of devices and how they're uh, basically able to be used from a mobile location. You turn them on, cell phones will connect to them, and then you can, um, you know, you can read all the information that's through it. So it was just uh, a very interesting article. You know, they're not that expensive, and um, it says federal authorities have spent more than $30 million on Stingrays and related equipment and training since, 20, since 2004. And so it just kind of goes through these different kind of devices that basically hack telephony, but... They're not built by hackers. They're, you know, they're used by the government. I'm assuming these are extremely illegal to own in the wild. Yes, that's what it says. Like they're actually, and the, but the kind of the scary thing about it is that, um, you know, they're also very shadowy because they don't want people to know exactly what they do because that will limit their effectiveness, I guess. But so, you know, there is a website from the company, Florida-based Harris Corporation. They're selling them to the government uh, in sounds like fairly large quantities. Uh, and they're used for mobile phone surveillance, um, you know, but they can't tell you anything about it because Dear boy. basically you have to like be a government agency or we can't even give you a brochure on what this thing possibly does. Although they, you know, ours had dug up some pretty good information about what they look like and, you know, and, and the fact that they're actually pretty common. Yeah, this is Ryan Gallagher on Ars Technica. That's a, that's a good one. I'm going to add that to my reading list, definitely. And then I'm going to get scared about every phone call I've ever made. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it says in here that they're not uh, they're not tracking the communications, but it does sound like you could do a nice man. You could do a nice man in the middle attack with this. Oh. But I think they're more tracking location and things like that. But I mean, who knows? Yeah. Like it, says to... they, it says they could do the communications. They just decide not to use it that way. Oh, like God. the like so, the device can do that, but it's just. So, so you don't really know what anybody's doing with these things is the scary part. Right. right. So use SSL everywhere. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Isn't that dangerous too? Assume everyone's <laughs> watching you. On an older Mac that has the, bro the bug in it. Yeah. Um, what is that called? If fail, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Yeah, right. The go to fail bug. Go to fail. <laughs> Yay. We're going to go to fail. Yay. So um, the next one I have in here is uh, Apache Avro. I know Avro is something, uh, it's a serialization processing API mm -hmm. that Hadoop uses, um, and a lot of Hadoop tools will use, so you can throw things in HDFS or parse them back and forth, that kind of thing. Um, and I found a nice little set of tutorials to get started with, um, uh, a couple of articles that were linked to off of dzone.java.com from Rishav Rohit, Rishav Rohit, I believe. And uh, so it goes through kind of like an overhead, uh, a basic introduction to what Avro is, 
you know, they talk about the different types of uh, data that can be passed back and forth. It's a very compact binary data format. Um, it connects to a lot of different languages. I, I'm still in the search for, and uh, Don and, and Joel, see if you think about this. Remember back in the flex days that people were really hot on AMF, you know, the Adobe, um, yep. uh-huh. yeah, that format. So I've been looking around and saying, well, what are the options for JavaScript developers today? I've just been hacking around and looking. And I, I did see there's one, like, I think it's called, uh, I, I don't remember anymore, like one called serialized.js, but that's not, probably not it. But I didn't see anything that jumped out at me. And I thought maybe Avro would have a JavaScript version, but there is one, but it's there's no releases for it yet. It's a GitHub project to try to port Avro to JavaScript. So I'm like, darn. But um, just curious in terms of binary things like that. But Java, C, C++, C Sharp, Python, and Ruby, it's a lot of different platforms it supports. Um, as I drop my pen. Uh, let's see. So anyway, so they go through kind of talk about schemas. They talk about, uh, you know, how it deals with serialization. And then he has kind of a getting started two-parter as well. So if you're curious about how Avro works, it's a nice little quick read. Uh, you know, see what you think of it. And if you're looking for some sort of binary remoting between two systems, um, specifically to Hadoop especially, back and forth, you can use Avro. I know we've used it on some projects here. Um, and so, you know, there's been some good success with it on some of our uh, big data projects. So, uh, Hadle Hackathon, let's talk about your fun with Ember. So you've been, uh, you've been jumping ship, man. You're going away from the Angular world. Well, you know, <laughs> Hadle were a little bit of contrarians. So, you know, there were just so many people doing Ember <laughs> Angular that we just had to do something else. No, um, it, you know, it's, it's really interesting. So we spent, so the, the um, Hadle development team uh, spent two days hacking on Ember. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really good. It was fun. And you might wonder, like, just generally speaking, what's the difference between Ember and Angular? And there's a lot of different answers to that. But there's a really, really good um, talk by the Ember team about how they view it. And basically, they say um, the difference between Angular and Ember is guardrails. So is extra code that they put in to codify some conventions. So by nature, it's more opinionated. They said, so Ember is a very opinionated framework for JavaScript in similar in the same way that Rails is a very opinionated framework for um, for Ruby. And they said, you know, if you look at um, opinionated, if you look at Ruby's uh, on Rails' overall market share, it's not very high in the server, you know, the overall server-side market. It's like 5% is what Yehuda Katz uh, estimated in this article or in this, this uh, thing. But he said, if you look at Rails's uh, percentage or market share of very opinionated frameworks, it's much higher. So his point was, you know, of the opinionated kind of frameworks for Rails, Rails has kind of coalesced around, people have kind of coalesced around that as like the way to do things. And so in Ember, you know, he feels like Angular is a more flexible framework than Ember, just like, um, you know, Backbone is a more flexible framework than Angular. They all kind of build, you know, he called Backbone probably like a 50% solution where you would have to build, you know, it would give you 50%, you have to build 50% more. And Angular might be you know, let's just say like a 90% solution and Ember.js is like a 95% solution. So the extra code, it's a bigger framework, but the extra code is there to provide these guardrails to essentially codify a way of doing things, um, you know, in a much more prescriptive way or in a more prescriptive way. And, um, you know, and if you buy into these ways of doing things, then, um, you know, that, that's, you know, that's their, their take on it so that they, they're more prescriptive on purpose and so there's less variance in the way that people do things. So anyway, we we like Ember, and we were looking at Ember uh, partially because we had a good relationship, or several of the members of our team have a good relationship with Yehuda Katz, 
Uh, he's come to, we've you know, met with him many times at um, our conference, Philly ETE, Philly Emerging Tech, um, and, you know, really admire his thinking, basically. And so hacking with Ember, it was really enjoyable. We, um, but I'll give you some of the, the good parts and the bad parts. And the good parts were, um, you know, we were, we tried to get a pretty ambitious project where we um, took an application that was modularized. So rather than a lot of the, the kind of web framework, these kind of MVC web frameworks, you can start just having everything in a giant JavaScript file and everything in a, you know, giant HTML file and just code that way just to get started. But that's not very real world. You know, so we had something where everything was kind of broken out, the different pieces, controllers and models, and everything were in their own directories. And, and when you do that, you need to pre-compile everything together in some way. And so what we used uh, was this cool build thingy called Broccoli. And so we couldn't use Grunt. Grunt's way too easy. Grunt's what everybody else does. No, but Grunt is actually a task runner. So the Broccoli guy says Grunt is a task runner that you can use as a build tool, whereas Broccoli is just a build tool, and it's very fast, and it's an asset pipeline. Um, of and course. It's, it's cool. Of course. <laughs> and it's cool. So, we, so we, used, we did some Broccoli. We cooked up some Broccoli, and uh, we had this you know, well-laid-out app, and we decided to write an Ember data. So Ember's essentially ORM is called Ember Data. You don't need to use it. It's optional. Some big projects like Discourse do not use, that use Ember.js do not use Ember Data. So they're independent, although they're the same team that makes them. So there's Ember.js, which is this MVC framework, and then there's Ember Data, which is a little bit less mature. They're still at 1.0 beta 7 right now. They haven't actually made it to 1.0, but it's pretty good. So we decided to make an Ember Data adapter to Elasticsearch, which is a essentially document-based um, search engine that's very cool that we use just to see how this would all work. So you would take, you have an Ember.js application, you'd store your data in Elasticsearch, and we'd write the adapter between that. And we got pretty close to finishing that. We're actually probably going to finish it out on our own time and open source it, um, you know, just to kind of connect the two. But it was a good experience. But a couple things we found, you know, from, from doing it, you know, uh, I was prepared for Ember.js to be really complicated because I'd heard that. I don't think it's that complicated. It was. It's not um, simple. Like I don't think you'll just, you know, um, figure it out with no effort. But I didn't think it was overly complicated. However, the naming conventions, just like other things that rely heavily on convention over configuration, you can get tripped up. Like I had one time where I got tripped up where I just misspelled a controller, and I was trying to figure out why on earth my controller wasn't getting called or my route. Anyway, um, Ember auto-generates things for you according to a naming convention, but you can uh, also provide your own implementation, but you have to follow the naming convention, and I didn't. So that kind of <laughs> threw me off at one point. And then uh, another thing is it has very, very cool fixture data. So you can, you can generate, <clears throat> you're using Ember data, you can create a model. So let's say you have questions, and these questions have answers as an example model. And then you, um, Ember Data will then load that data from a REST API or, or a different, or in this case, we want to put an adapter sort of loaded from Elasticsearch. But you can also use mock data, and it's a very nice way of loading mock data from a JSON file. But it got a little hard to figure out when you, um, when you had mock data that had relationships. Just in the mocking framework, um, how you would have, like if a question had multiple answers, and that's a one-to-many relationship. Um, you can define one-to-many relationships in Ember Data. But then, you know, how to, we got a little hooked up on how to, uh, a little stuck on how to uh, provide a, a mock uh, JSON data, you know, for that. But so that basically just speaks to the fact that Ember data is still a little uh, new. But, um, you know, I thought that, and, and still, it's still, there's still a few rough edges. 
but in general, you know, I would totally use it to, um, you know, build, build my next app. And I thought it was, it was cool and it was fun. And, um, you know, we're, we were pretty torqued up about Ember now. What's your uh, view templating language there? Are you able to use things like Jade and um, Handlebars or what is so, it? So Handlebars is the one that's the default, and Handlebars is actually maintained by the Ember team. Uh, I believe some oh, okay. other people have hacked in other ones. I'm not sure of that. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think that you actually can use Jade. Mm -hmm. But that was – so that was one thing. Coming from Rails where you're doing Haml and really liking the conciseness of Haml, so you're not doing full HTML tags. You're basically doing like HTML shorthand. Uh, and then going back to to handlebars, which is full HTML templates, but just you know um, including you know uh, basically tags for where you want to include dynamic data. Um, so so that it was actually kind of a pain to write full blown HTML again after you know living in some kind of nice concise Haml shorthand. Um, I think there probably is. I'm pretty sure there is uh, one, but but it's mostly. But handlebars is the default. Right. Yeah. Actually, just a side note. Um, you remember Brian Ford, the guy, one of the two guys that came up to the Angular talk at ETE last year. He he has a sample for Angular called Angular Express Seed, and on the Angular Express Seed, he's using Express on the server side with Node, and he makes the downloadable template Jade, and then you put your Angular expressions in the Jade script. So it's basically like Haml with Angular expressions, and it's kind of neat. I guess you could do the same kind of thing, really. That's just a server-side expression language. You know, whatever you pick for the server, you could say, you know, if it's Rails, I suppose you could use um, Haml and then put the Angular expressions in the outputted final HTML. Yeah, you could, but it would be mentally hard to test right. it that way and things, yeah. Two levels of, of templating. Yeah, no, you're right. No, Jade isn't supported. I, I know now how I bumped into Jade uh, recently, and that was um, totally different. But... Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, I just ran into Jade and it hurt my head. How so you doing? Yeah. <laughs> so no, Jade is not supported, and but it's doing everything client side is, is definitely nice, and obviously that's no different than Angular. Um, but yeah, it's a good framework, and um, you know we we enjoyed it, and we'll probably continue to hack with it. Cool. I know you only have a couple minutes left. Um, uh, Don, would you like to talk about so so Don Coleman? One of the reasons why I dragged him in here is he's he's does a lot of stuff with hardware with us. Uh, as part of one of his uh, areas of interest and what Bluetooth low energy and things like this. And you, you were talking about um, some of these kind of low energy devices being available for testing. Um, one of them is called what blue fruit, blue fruit. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of Bluetooth radios for doing classic Bluetooth. Um, but just recently um, Adafruit had come out with a Bluetooth low energy radio, which is very exciting. I just got one in the mail today, so I haven't got a chance to try it out yet. Um, Things are tiny. It's like yeah. the size of a quarter. Yeah. Right. So it's very small. It'll uh, make it really easy to Bluetooth enable with low energy on uh, the products. And that's really important for connecting to iPhones because iPhones don't have Bluetooth Classic. So, so that's pretty exciting. And then with the newer Android 4.3 and mostly 4.4, 4.3 is kind of buggy, has uh, Bluetooth low energy. So that, that's very exciting that that stuff's coming out. So basically what you could do is you can go to your local, I guess, Radio Shack or your local um, micro center or whatever and pick up some of the hardware and then down, you know, buy one of these little low energy devices, connect it up to your Arduino or whatever it is, correct? Right, yeah. For an Arduino, for Raspberry Pi, anything mm -hmm. like that, you can kind of embed that. You can do a lot of prototyping with it. And then, uh, it's, so it's, it's good stuff. Mm -hmm. And what do you program that stuff in? Um, that's like... Uh, if you're doing Python, a, or? if you're doing Arduino, it's um, mostly it's a 
easier form of C, very mm -hmm. simplified. They try to make it have uh, less pointers and other things that drive people nuts from the user perspective. Um, and then uh, if you're doing it on a Raspberry Pi, you got a lot more freedom to do uh, Python, Node. They're easy to do there. So Yeah, I'd like to focus a little more at some point on some of this stuff because I know you know, it's getting to the point now, if you were ever a hardware hobbyist, there's never a better time to play with stuff than now. There's so much stuff you can pick up, connect up, get to communicate with your computer, have it synchronize data back and forth, send sensor data around. Is this really that Internet of Things concept? Is that what this really yeah, is? Yeah, I don't like that term. I, don't I know. Have, I don't have a better term for it. But, yeah, basically trying to get everything connected to control a lot of it, and especially with having the phones and all these devices and getting them to coordinate together. Um, so a lot of that does it uh, IP-based, uh, but, you know, on really small devices, that uses a lot of power. So Bluetooth is a nice thing. you got to be within a short range, but it's really good. Sure, sure. And Joel, did you have to jump off? I do have to jump off, but it's been awesome talking with you guys, and I will uh, catch you the next time around. All right, take it easy. See you, Joel. Thanks. Bye. All right, so anyway, so let's talk about Android Wear. So, so the big deal now is, um, I guess... Android has, has an answer for some of these smartwatches, right? Yeah, and uh, it's not super clear. I mean, they have some nice shiny website. They have a developer preview. They got a lot of things going. There's been some really cool hardware announced. Um, I really like the look of the Motorola watch with the round screen. I look, do, too. looks more like a regular watch, so that's cool. Right. Um, there's the LG, I guess, which is going to be the kind of Nexus watch. That looks nice also. But there's not a whole lot of details yet on kind of what these are going to do. Are these going to be true standalone Android devices, or is it going to be more like a slave device that's going to have to work off of your phone? Right. Um, initially, it looks like in the preview that, you know, notifications and cards from Google Now are like the one thing in there. But I would expect they'll release a lot more stuff. Yeah, that's what I thought I read somewhere, that the whole concept, at least the major concept, is that you're extending the Google Now reach to uh, basically a remote device. That that's like the big killer feature from their perspective because they know so much about you. They're going to keep track of your schedule, your calendar, your time, your location. And that that's what they're going to think is the first killer app for it. Yeah, so it could be really interesting. Now, it definitely makes things probably a little more complex for, like, the Pebble people. Right. Um, because they have a different thing. I think they, uh, Samsung and Sony will probably have an Android Wear-based watch. Then there's smaller companies like Wearit, uh, Wearit.net, where, you know, they have a full uh, KitKat implementation in their watches. I think those are due to be released very soon. So there's a lot of interesting hardware out there. Be, uh, you know, see how people are going to be able to leverage it. Yeah, I mean, that's the main, the main interesting thing is you've got such a limited interface, right? I mean, you've got swiping, and but now I've seen in the demos, now you've got the whole Google Glass communications with it. Okay, Google, blah, blah, blah. You know, okay, Google, uh, you know, send text to Don saying, I just sent you a text from my phone, and you say back, that's great, good boy. <laughs> I could have done that a year ago with an Arduino. Yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, big questions are going to be how much are these things going to cost? Right. Is, is it worth having a $350 watch that does that? Probably not. And with um, six-hour battery life or something dumb like that. Right. But I think there could be a lot of cool stuff. Of course, I pictured you looking like a Borg with a uh, Google Glass <laughs> and the watch. And, oh, my so. God, can you imagine having all that? What, what happens if you've got the watch and you've got the, the glasses? You say, okay, Google, do they fight it out? Do they laser each other or something? And whoever wins takes the call? I don't know. Could be very weird. So, anyway, we're going to keep an eye on that. We've, uh, you know... Uh, Get the developer tools downloaded. Hopefully, hardware will be coming out soon. We can get our hands on that and go from there. Yeah, and I'm thinking, like, you know, the Galaxy, um, I don't know if it's happened yet, but the Samsung Galaxy Gear Watch, they had not released a SDK to developers unless you're in their special program, which is kind of a weird move, I think, um, you know, because you would think they would open it up. 
but for whatever reason they haven't. So it's good to see Android come out and say, here's a solution. Everyone who wants to get on board, get on board now. Start playing around with solutions, you know, software for it. Yeah. Um, there's a really nice design, uh, like uh, basically Google Plus has a nice little board on it. And there was a section that said, let's see some designs that people have like thought up. Have you seen that? No, I haven't seen that. It's, it's really a, nifty. A, it's a community on Google Plus. Or? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a Google Plus Google Plus community for Google uh, Wear. Mm -hmm. And there's a there's I don't know if Motorola did it with their designers or someone did, but they had basically a bunch of different animated slides of or maybe it was a video and it was showing like you know talking to the watch to set up an appointment or to do a text and then showing how it would get notifications and how you could do different types of applications like weather um, and the swiping process for that. So. Okay. Apparently, you swipe down to get another card is the idea. And then each each thing that comes down is a card. I guess it's like a mini app. And you can scroll left and right within the card. Okay. Which is an interesting kind of, you know, Rolodex kind of concept, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So watch this space for more information. All right. And that'll do it. So, uh, again, you can get to us anytime you want to and go back to our large archive of developer news and TechCast interviews and presentations from emerging technologies to the enterprise, you name it, all on ChariotSolutions.com. Uh, the dev news is on ChariotSolutions.com slash dev news if you want to see. This is episode 83 for the show notes. And you can certainly subscribe through iTunes. i got to get us on the Google Play Store. It's one thing I haven't done yet. That's very bad of me. Uh, but through iTunes and through our RSS uh, right from there. And that's it. So for the developer news, I'm Ken Rimple. And Don Coleman. And we will talk to you in two weeks.